The Pacific Islands' traditional metropolitan partners are focusing more on China's increased engagement in the region. As this Radio New Zealand Insight program has been finding out, some have been surprised by China's burgeoning direct investment in the Pacific, its rapid surge as an aid donor, and the growing dominance of Chinese in retail sectors across the islands. I invite comments or questions from our panel. Do you really, really believe China is powerful enough to break through the Americans' so-called second Iceland chain? Or where is the idea from? Is it from your heart or from American Department of Defense or from Japanese Department? An academic, Wang Zuedong of the National Center for Oceania Studies at China's Sun Yat-sen University, Guangzhou, challenges the idea that China is developing military capacity to rival the U.S. in the Pacific. He was one of a bevy of Chinese scholars and government representatives who made the long trip out to Samoa to debate China's increased engagement in the Pacific Islands. The involvement of so many Chinese representatives in this meeting, organised by Victoria University, Sun Yat-sen and Samoa's National University, was seen by many as groundbreaking. It was a rare chance to hear Chinese views on China's involvement in the Pacific and ardent voices like that of Wang Zuedong. You know, and we are the big guy in the crowd. See, it's naturally, when we move on the side, other people say, wow, be careful, that big guy coming. So, well, the question is, how big is it big enough? The Pacific Ocean, in my mind, it should be the shared stage. It cannot be the someone's private backyard. I'm Johnny Blades, and this insight examines China's increasing role in the Pacific, as the Chinese see it, and what it means for Pacific Islanders, as well as their traditional metropolitan partners. China moved to take a leading regional role in 2006, when it held its first gathering of Pacific Island countries in Fiji. At the most recent meeting of its cooperation forum in Guangzhou, China announced a $1.3 billion loan facility for Pacific Islands. China's ambassador to Samoa, Li Yanduan, explains that China's assistance for developing countries is mutually beneficial. Uh, it is our belief the common development is good uh, for the interests of China and also the rest uh, of the developing countries. So that's why we uh, take uh, the Pacific Island countries are important and uh, we would like to contribute something to the development of this region. The early phase of China's engagement in the region was characterized by efforts to counter the influence of Taiwan. A game of checkbook jousting with Taiwan for diplomatic links into the islands retreated when both sides agreed in 2009 to a truce of sorts. Six Pacific Island countries recognized Taiwan diplomatically and eight recognized China. Links with Taiwan don't stop these six countries trading with Beijing. Some, like Solomon Islands, are a major source of the Pacific's exports to China in the form of fish and forestry products. Solomon Islands academic Tarsisius Tara Kambotulaka says China's foray into the region is a natural bid to secure access to resources for domestic needs. 
that if you look at it historically, there is nothing unique about China's search for natural resources in other parts of the world. We've seen it in the 1800s in the Pacific. Uh, the rise of European power, for instance, is associated with increasing resource exploitation in other parts of the world. Of course, there are differences, but there are, the, the similarity is that you have an emerging global economic power. They will go out looking for resources. The director of the New Zealand Contemporary China Research Centre, Bo Zhuye, says China's new leadership is clear about its foreign priorities. So basically U.S. is always the big gorilla in the room. Then Japan was considered a major rival in the, in the, in the region. Uh, Pacific Island countries are uh, you know, down the list. China's uh, trade with, uh, you know, investment or trade with this particular region is 0.012% of, of the China's total trade. Nevertheless, between 2000 and 2012, trade between China and the region increased from around $320 million to $2.3 billion. At the same time, China has become the new major player on the Pacific Islands aid scene, forging a reputation for high-profile aid projects that provide infrastructure. The assistance comes mostly through so-called soft loans with long repayment timeframes and low interest rates. Apia provides many good examples. Here in the heart of Samoa's capital, the evidence of Chinese assistance is clear. Major recent structures, Chinese built, a large government building on each flank of the CBD. Along from here, the new justice buildings, conference centre, further out sports facilities, and back up the hill, a national hospital, all built by China. Samoa's Prime Minister Tuilepa Sailele Malialenga Oi says Chinese aid fills a certain gap. The problem, of course, is that uh, different countries, uh, development partners uh, of the region, have different uh, priorities. That's why I mentioned that China comes in as uh, providing supplementary resources available to the region, covering those areas which are not covered uh, in traditional. But many with an interest in the region's geopolitics raise questions about the level of transparency around China's aid efforts in the Pacific. Academics noted China's bureaucracy around its aid program is weaker than that of other large donors, and that has made it difficult to find out the true value of Chinese aid. But the picture is getting clearer. China released a white paper on its foreign aid last year, which detailed almost $19 billion in aid from 2010 to 2012. About half went to African countries. Oceania received just over 4%. A Chinese aid specialist, Philippa Brandt, who is with the Sydney-based Lowy Institute, an independent international policy think tank, has recently produced a landmark web map setting out Chinese aid projects throughout the Pacific. I've been able to track um, all, of the, all of the major aid projects that China's funded since 2006. And what this has revealed is that um, China has now overtaken New Zealand and is on track to overtake Japan. And I think in the, in the next few years we will see it rivaling the United States as well. Of course, Australia is still by far, far and large the, the largest donor. Dr Brandt's calculations show that from 2006 to 2013, Australia gave $7.8 billion of aid to the Pacific. The U.S. gave $2.2 billion. China, Japan and New Zealand gave around $1.5 billion over this period. The largest single recipient of Chinese aid money in the Pacific is Fiji. In the last eight years, Fiji received $435 million in bilateral aid from Beijing.
In a first for the region, China's President Xi Jinping visited Fiji in November and met Pacific Island leaders. In his welcome speech, Fiji's Prime Minister Frank Bainimarama expounded on the basis for the China-Fiji relationship, alluding to soured relations with New Zealand and Australia after his 2006 coup. China never tried to interfere in our internal affairs or tell us what was best for us as a nation. Instead, China was there in our time of need when others in the region had turned their backs on us. Philippa Brandt estimates that more than three quarters of Chinese aid to the Pacific comes in the form of concessional loans. These soft loans generally stipulate the use of Chinese contractors and materials for the work on the aid project. For instance, Tonga gratefully took up China's offer of assistance with the $153 million reconstruction of the capital Nukualofa in the form of soft loans. This followed riots in 2006 which destroyed much of the CBD of Tonga's capital and where Chinese businesses took the brunt of the looting and burning. However, local journalist and publisher Pesi Fonua says critical questions about the assistance, such as planning and the quality of work, weren't addressed. It's very impressive to look at the figures, but now I think um, most countries in the region, including Tonga, is now is looking at the quality of what has been built. Then, of course, then it takes you to how does the whole arrangement, the procurement, the quality control, who is doing that and who decided on that. Tonga appears to have little chance of repaying the loan, and it's just been revealed that around two-thirds of the kingdom's external debt is to the Export-Import Bank of China. Back in Wellington, outside the Chinese embassy, I'm heading in to put some of the criticisms about Chinese aid and the debt burden it creates for Pacific Island countries to China's ambassador in New Zealand, Wang Lutong. We have very strict and professional economic and technological um, feasibility studies and evaluations before the project is carried out. And if there is any possibility of um, the difficulty of the benefit countries paying the debt, that sort of issue could be resolved uh, through bilateral channels. You mean just uh, you're open to discussion about the, the... We can discuss any possibilities. But uh, what, what I want to say is that, I mean, China's foreign economic assistance to this region, it is not one way, um, it is not like giving away the money. I would rather regard it as a bridge between China and the South Pacific nations with the aim of enhancing the bilateral trade. So it is kind of win-win cooperation. While Chinese state aid to the region is a relatively recent phenomenon, people-to-people -people contact goes back generations. So they come here as farmers and eventually they save and started small businesses like restaurants, small shops, and they grow. Nico Li Hang is a Samoa MP and a member of the Samoa Chinese Association. His forebears were among the first waves of Chinese immigrants to Samoa, dating back to the days of German rule at the turn of the 20th century. Chinese Samoans became a key driver of Samoa's economy and have blended in to become Pacific Islanders. But Nico Li Hang says the latest wave has brought big changes. The new Chinese coming in, they've got money, they come in a separate spaces, and it helps the economy as well. Uh, the only worry is that these Chinese people coming now, they have money, and they tend to establish places everywhere, and it's affecting the, the small local uh, 
business people who are starting new businesses and so forth. So they can't compete with these uh, big guys. A specialist in Samoan governance from the University of Otago's Department of Politics, Yati Yati, has just concluded a survey in Samoa of grassroots views on Chinese in the country and found significant differences with those who went before. The most recent wave does not seem to want to integrate with Samoan society, not even to a small degree. It seems as if the, the latest wave, which is the most recent migration of Chinese, looks like they pretty much want to keep to themselves. There was even talk among people that some of the families want to keep their daughters away from, I guess, the Samoan males. <laughs> they don't want them to form relationships with them. Dr Yati says the grassroots reception to Chinese aid projects is lukewarm. Common comment was they look pretty good but no good for us. Well, you've got the big government buildings in town, great for the government, great for the you know, um, public sector. While they're great to look at, it kind of makes the country look nice. For them, it really, most of these projects don't have practical value. I'm just walking through the Savalalo flea market in downtown Apia. Uh, there's a lot of stalls selling little goods, traditionally made weapons and jewellery and knickknacks. But there's also a lot of t-shirt shops. And this is an area where the sort of the difference between local and Chinese uh, is quite marked. Chinese t-shirt? If the people ask where, where's, where's it made from, if you say Chinese, they don't like it. Why not? Because the Chinese is, is not last long. They start copying the, the stocks and items that are available and people are selling everyday needs. So they went to China and bring the cheap stuff and they, they sell in really low price. So all the local business owners are getting broke and no, no more business. Dr Yati has found Chinese dominance in the ownership of supermarkets and general stores was an issue for Samoans. Well, on the one hand, they're quite pleased with the prices that are available to people. On the other hand, they are concerned that this will lead to a lot of Samoan businesses going out of business. They just cannot compete, both in terms of price and in terms of the fact that a lot of Samoan businesses are caught up in certain cultural protocols, which makes it a little bit more expensive for them in offering their goods. Dr Yati says another imbalance is that local people don't have the access to capital and goods that the Chinese businesses have. One of the big players in Samoa's economy is the Kai family from Guangdong province. Frankie Kai owns several of the country's biggest supermarkets. His cousin Kenny operates a smaller but busy supermarket in the back blocks of Apia. Kenny Kai first came to Samoa 20 years ago on holiday to visit an uncle. The routine of life in China meant that he, like many others who leave, saw great appeal in the whiff of fresh air of a foreign locale. You just like, I just thinking maybe I need to do something change for my life. Because everybody, my classmate or every family in China, they just, uh, not much different change. Uh, so I, this the chance for me to change my whole life. When he arrived, he had next to nothing and knew nothing of Samoan culture. Kenny Kai says that learning to speak Samoan over the years helped his integration into local society. Firstly, it's good for my business. Secondly, it's good for me to make a friendship with them. It's more the shortcut to close to each other. If I'm speaking uh, English to the local people, they firstly they 
treat you like a tourist, not really friendly with you, not close to each other. Yeah. The Samoa-China link is set to get even stronger, with new passport for investment legislation working its way through Parliament. The Citizenship Immigration Bill doesn't target investors from any particular country, but China's wealthy middle class is a likely source. Samoa's opposition and some ruling party MPs fear it will further dilute Samoan culture and increase Chinese dominance in business. Take a photo first. Okay, yeah, sure. Chinese delegates at the conference crowd around Samoa Prime Minister Tuilepa Sailele Malia Langaoi seeking selfies with him, interrupting my attempt to interview him. He came all the way from China. He came all the way from China. You've got to get that photo. This uh, citizenship bill, there's obviously been a lot of talk about it. Um, you've been looking to dispel some of the concerns? Well, we do exactly like what New Zealand is doing, simply for our own self-interest. Far to the west of Samoa, in Papua New Guinea, Chinese investment is already making an impact in the form of resource extraction projects like the $2.6 billion Ramu nickel mine. The project's been unpopular with the local people, mainly because it involves the dumping of toxic waste 150 metres off the Medang coast. The employment of Chinese in the country without legal permits to work on the project has also caused problems. A specialist in journalism and publishing at PNG's Divine Word University, Patrick Matbob, told the conference lax systems and widespread corruption in his country mean Chinese criminal interests have found an easy foothold. He says this is preventing PNG from benefiting fully from all the new investment. So PNG has some major governance issues. Forget about trade and investments, because if we have the problem within, we cannot get things right. Government systems, processes, agencies are not functioning. They're not transparent or they are corrupt. This is affecting politicians, public servants at national, provincial, local levels. And it also impacts on foreign investors, including the Chinese. For example, PNG's high crime rate means for the Chinese businessman who sets up his supermarket, he has to bribe the police so that he can work successfully. Patrick Matbob worries that frustration over corruption will boil over again, as it did in 2009 when coordinated riots targeted Chinese businesses in PNG's four biggest urban centres. And this basically had to do with these reserve uh, businesses, supposed to be meant for Papua New Guinea only. Now, uh, the government has lifted the ban on this. Suddenly, the Chinese businessmen are able to you know, set up little sh shops and sell goods, things that Papua New Guinea thought were supposed to be only done by them, and that made the people upset. In 2006, in the Solomon Islands capital Honiara, the local Chinatown was largely destroyed by rioters who targeted businesses after the election of an unpopular government. The Chinese appear to have become a target for the frustration of unemployed young Pacific adults at times of tension. There was more violence in Honiara, on a smaller scale, after last year's major flooding. Along with debates about Chinese aid and the transparency and implications of the scale of assistance, some academics observe nervousness among the US and its allies about the development of China's navy. Some of that focuses on whether Beijing may break the so-called second island chain.
What Chinese strategists call the first island chain encompasses the South China and East China Seas, where marine and territorial disputes could involve friction with the U.S. The director of the University of Hawaii's Centre for Pacific Studies, Terence Wesley-Smith, says the second island chain refers to an arc of islands from PNG and up through Micronesia. So the ability to operate beyond that chain is apparently an objective of the naval build-up, but the debate is um, when and would that be a priority and when would they have the capacity to do that. Uh, my own impression is that that is not a priority yet and it will be some years before that capacity is available. Many Western academics have viewed China's expansion in the region and its interest in sea lanes in a geostrategic light. But Chinese academics at the conference in Samoa stressed that China is chiefly interested in ensuring the flow of goods and raw materials to and from China can continue. Its huge population and growing middle class mean likely ongoing and growing demand for Pacific resources like its massive fishery. But state support for Chinese operators in the Pacific Ocean fishery is causing problems for local fishers. As the World Wildlife Fund's Western and Central Pacific Tuna Program Manager Bubba Cook explains. It creates a perverse dynamic in terms of competition with um, the regionally based fisheries. For instance, it's been, it's been terribly detrimental to the, the Fiji longline fishing industry, which simply can't compete at, at the fuel prices and, and labor costs and everything that they have to pay for out of their own pockets, where the Chinese fleet is able to expand and, and continue to catch uh, at, a, at a profit because they're so heavily subsidized. And that's true throughout the Pacific. Bubba Cook says China is also not playing fairly at the regional level, such as summits of the body which makes decisions on tuna fishing in the region, the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission. What we've seen just in recent years with the Western and Central Pacific Fisheries Commission meeting where most of the other parties fishing within the region were able to come to an agreement on what level the, the number of vessels should be capped at and how they should continue forward with management of the fishery. Literally at the last minute, uh, the Chinese representative came into the, the small meeting group, the small working group where, where everyone was meeting and says, not only can we not agree to this, we're going to increase the number of vessels uh, to a level of 400 uh, total vessels you know, targeting albacore in this, in this fishery, uh, which was an almost 300 vessel increase to what they had already uh, had in place. Recent revelations about New Zealand spying on its Pacific Island neighbours for a US-led intelligence network may not have helped the reputation in the region of the traditional powers. And the region has more options than ever for partnership, as India, Indonesia, Israel and Russia jostle for influence. Terence Wesley-Smith says Japan has also upped its game as a result of China's increased engagement in the region. Japan has not been shy to, to express its alarm at China's rise in the region. And in 2006, the Chinese premier um, had his, uh, the first of several forums in Fiji with uh, Pacific Island leaders and announced very significant increase in Chinese aid to the region and that later that same year Japan had one of its own meetings with Pacific Island leaders known as PAM and upped its uh, aid allocation that it would announce at that meeting significantly. Lingering disputes between China and Japan are contained in the South China Sea for now. 
but the potential exists for rivalry spreading to parts of the Pacific, such as Micronesia, where key territories will soon be looking for new partners to step into the breach once their long-term funding pacts with the US expire. The Secretary of the Centre for Oceanian Studies at Peking University, Professor Liao Hongzhong, suggests the time has come to dispense with misperceptions about China's motives for helping Pacific countries. And of course China has a big population and people will doubt about the motives and whether they are going to take the lead or you know, change the rules or whatever. So why don't just take China as another traditional member of the donors? If New Zealand or Australia is going to donate, would anyone doubt about its motives? China's ambassador to New Zealand, Cook Islands and Niue, Wang Lutong, says that Chinese aid can work well with traditional donors. It seems to me that Chinese um, economic systems centered very much on infrastructure, while New Zealand and Australia centered their economic systems uh, on such areas as health and education, etc. So that's why I believe we could be complementary rather than confrontational and competitive. Chinese economic assistance to this region is open and inclusive rather than exclusive. I don't think we have any intention to set up our own sphere of influence or change the pattern of economic assistance to this region. It is not possible, nor is it necessary. China has also shown readiness to partner with other countries in its Pacific aid efforts, such as the recent tripartite project with New Zealand and the Cook Islands to establish a successful water supply project. Liao Hongzhong says China is learning and is increasingly keen to extend aid which benefits ordinary people of the Pacific. China is still a developing country and a lot of the general public probably didn't quite understand the Pacific Island nation uh, and their cultures and uh, their rather lack of knowledge about other side of the world since it has not been very long for China to open up to the rest of the world. Their interest to the rest of the world is great. By the same time, the lack of information about the other side of the world might cause a lot of uh, misunderstandings and mistrust about the Chinese. She says public disappointment about Chinese aid in the Pacific is often really to do with mismanagement by local government. The Samoan people are sometimes skeptical about their own government the poor management of their own government. So if the Chinese uh, aid is going to the infrastructure, they thought that it only helps the government. Well, the government is some, something that they do not trust that much. So Chinese was blamed because of that. So I don't think it's fair. Meanwhile, China is putting increasing emphasis on personal links, cultural exchanges, scholarships and training for Pacific Islanders. The Chinese deputy head of mission in Samoa, Yang Liao, says this is fostering greater understanding between China and the Pacific Islanders. During the uh, last summit meeting be between our President Xi Jinping and uh, all the uh, Pacific Island country leaders, we, uh, President Xi pledged uh, a measure to uh, we will uh, provide 2,000 uh, scholarships and 5,000 training uh, opportunities. 5,000 training. Yeah, 5,000 training opportunities in the coming five years. Uh, in the past 40 years, we have trained 4,000 4, uh, uh, officials and uh, technicians uh, in the 40 past 40 years, but in the coming four, five years, we are offering another 5,000, so you can see the uh, dramatic increase of uh, the uh, people to people exchange opportunities, the uh, capacity building. 
Rebecca Bogiri is a young Ni Vanuatu who completed a five-year scholarship in China. She says scholarship holders like her have the chance to pick up the language and improve their understanding of Chinese culture. They also improve their career prospects. And when these students come back to the Pacific Island countries, they, it's also beneficial for them because their range of um, career options have been widened and um, they cannot only concentrate on their major, but they can also work in um, diverse areas such, such as um, property uh, consultants, um, policy analysts, policy planners, um, tourism operators, um, and other areas uh, that cater for the needs of these new and incoming Chinese and the increasing Chinese numbers in the Pacific. Rebecca Bogiri's time in China also proved soft diplomacy works both ways. It's been um, a pleasure to be able to introduce my country, Vanuatu, and other Pacific Island countries as well during my time in China. And um, during our cultural exhibitions at the university, um, we really marketed our tourist um, destinations in the Pacific, um, in Vanuatu, PNG, Samoa, Tonga, and Fiji. But whatever the topic, the message from those who specialize in the geopolitics of the region is that China is here to stay. Fiji's deputy opposition leader and a former head of economics and business at the University of the South Pacific, Beeman Prasad, says Pacific Islands need to integrate further with Australia and New Zealand as they, in turn, integrate further with China in economic and trade spheres. However, he says island countries need to introduce greater cost-benefit analysis on Chinese aid projects. The concern for uh, many of us who are looking at you know, China's uh, expanding role in the Pacific, China's integration with the Pacific, uh, is somewhat a lack of transparency uh, and good governance from the recipient countries uh, so that there is due diligence, appropriate cost-benefit analysis are done and uh, projects prioritized because otherwise you know, uh, debts would be piling up. Uh, for many of these countries which have to be paid uh, uh, later on and it could be a huge burden in future generations. However, the opportunities that China has opened up could be transformative for the Pacific Islands. Through sheer size alone, it offers the countries chances for the kind of economic empowerment that have long eluded most of them. And Pacific Islanders like Tarsisius Tara Kambautolaka say the region must grab those opportunities. I think what we need to do in the Pacific as we should continue to feed the dragon, it looks like a good one. We should make sure that it's tame, and we should find a way to ride it. And that is a sentiment the Chinese support. They believe the Pacific is a big ocean, big enough for all external partners to be able to splash around in. I'm Johnny Blades, and that's Insight for this week. If you would like to share any thoughts, you can send an email to insight at radionz.co.nz. Our Twitter handle is rnz underscore insight. I wrote and presented that program. It was produced by Philip Atolli with technical production by William Saunders.